Good morning. Well, welcome to Plainfield Bible. Winter is not yet gone. I will say that as we left Crawfordsville, it was not snowing. So the Lord is shining down on us rural folk in the country. And you city folk, he just must not love as much. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. Also, there was a time change. I have not yet changed my watch, so I've got a bonus hour that I can see. As I look at that clock, I'm going to go with this one. That's not also true. I won't do that to you today. But I'm thrilled to see so many of you here today. I think maybe the age of the smartphone has cured some of those problems. You wake up and your phone says the right time without you changing it. That's not my problem. I still have to go with the old school of change the clock. But I'm thrilled that you're here today. Before we get into the Word of God, let's bow in prayer one more time to our mighty Father. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise your name. You are good and perfect and righteous. And as we just sang, your son paid it all. A a debt we could not pay. We had no capacity for it. We didn't even know we needed it. In spite of our sin, going in the wrong direction, heading in the way that all men go, in spite of all of that, being your enemy, at just the right time, you saved us. In spite of our, the depths of the depravity of our hearts, which you clearly tell us is true of all of us, you loved us and you showed us mercy, paid it all, and all to you we owe. That sin that left the crimson stain, you washed it white as snow. And that, that is such a beautiful thing to sing. I pray that each of us that sang that this morning, that it's true for us, that by grace we're saved through faith, That we believe and we repent and we trust in you and you alone for what you really are. Not just a miracle maker. Not just someone who dazzles. Not just a God who can perform miracles, but the God who saves. I pray that each man and woman here, young and old, has a clear understanding of who they are. Sinners that are in desperate need of a Savior. That our greatest problem is not an ail or a a disease or a financial issue or some sort of a relational or emotional problem. That's not the problem. Our problem is our sin. We confess it. We know that we need a Savior. So I pray that every heart here is stirred by that. Your Word is going to tell us that today. That we're convicted by it and that we turn. That we believe. And we know this happens by Your grace and we praise Your name for that. Let's draw people to Yourself today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning as we, as we look at this title, Signs and Wonders, it seems dynamic, and it is. When we think of a title like this, you know what's coming is you're going to see a miracle or two, or we'll discuss some things that are incredible that God did, and that's exciting and it should be, believer. We do have an incredible God who does care and who did perform miracles and proved himself to be true. But I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, spoiler alert, signs and wonders, if that's all you care about, that is not enough. That is not what Jesus came to do primarily. That wasn't what this was all about for him. We've sung about it today, we've even heard it in the first hour, the contrast of what's right and what's wrong based on scripture and the gospel, but signs and wonders don't save people. The risen Christ does. The blood of Jesus does. So I've said this before. I could stop there. I'm not going to. But that's going to be the crux of this message today. That we're going to see in Scripture so very clearly that it has to go beyond that. 
And the reason I mention this to start us with today is because I think it's a very common sentiment that there should just be an intellectual assent if you just kind of play the game. Maybe you kind of infuse some Christianese into your language. You go to church occasionally. You maybe go and worship and sing that, there is, that, you, that you're a big fan of Jesus, that that's going to be enough. That he's going to see that and say, yeah, they, they tried. They, they tried hard. I could see that that's good enough. But there was no relationship, and he didn't know them. And they didn't know him. And there's going to be a very big difference that we'll see today as we go through. So here's our outline for today. We're going to need to get a little bit of a setup to what we're going to look at here. And this is going to, and I'm going to let you turn there now. John chapter 4, 46 through 54 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to give you a little bit of a setup as to what's going on in this passage. We need context to help us. What we're going to see here is a very false view of Jesus that in my opinion, is still just penetrating through the souls of men today. That is still very evident in our churches today and in, in and amongst American Christians in particular. But as we've already heard this morning, praying for our missionaries, that's, that's worldwide. That there is a distorted, twisted view of Jesus as being just a genie for us. And then what we see here is a, a crisis in a man's life in that crisis faith turning into a confident faith. And there's a reason for that. His name is Jesus. And then the grace of God in spite of our unbelief, in spite of our insufficiencies. And remember, that's always what it's going to be about. So here's a quick setup. If you look at John 4, you're there by now, I'm sure. In John chapter 4, before we get to our passage, here's what we've seen. An incredible thing. Jesus takes his men into enemy territory. Now, not for him. Keep in mind, the world is enemy territory for Jesus. Everyone was his enemy. Whether they knew it or not, whether we know it or not, until we're redeemed, that's exactly where we stand. But from the Jewish perspective, they despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans despised them, and Jesus took them right there. And when he goes there, we know this story so well, Christ encounters this woman at the well. And and just to kind of, this is a very, very brief thing, He tells her so many things about herself, and this is a miracle. This is proving himself to be Christ, Messiah, God incarnate. She's impressed to the point where she tells everybody about it, which, by the way, that is the proper reaction for a believer. Tell everybody about it. That's exactly what Jesus wants you to do. There was times in the New Testament and through the Gospels where Jesus will, for timing's sake, because of his providence, say, don't tell anybody yet. That is not the case anymore, Christian. You tell people what Jesus has done for you. You make sure that it's known what Christ did for you. She does that. Many are saved. That's what we see here. So go back for just a second to the end of that section in your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 39. Let's take a look at this. I'll bring it up on the screen in case you don't have it. Here's what it says. It's interesting. There was a sign given. The only sign we know of is what he did with her. Look at what it says. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. The miracle he performed with her, telling her her thoughts, reading her heart, driving through to her that he was the Messiah that had been promised. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. But look at this. Many more believed because of what? His word. His word. We don't see anything more here about a miracle. He may have, but we don't know of that. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of Israel. They, they understood they needed something beyond that. The Savior of the world from His Word. From His Word. Now here's the beautiful thing about that. You have that sitting in front of you today. It's sitting on your lap. Now maybe some of you have it in your phone, but hopefully you got a real one right in front of you. You're holding God's Word in your hands which contains the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what you need to be saved. You don't need a sign or a miracle. So you can see how this is setting us up. Notice this. He said, Jesus saved many Samaritans in that two days. We don't know how many. And it specifically was the result of hearing him preach the gospel. The reason I'm bringing this up and putting it up as a point, last week in Sunday school, you had false teachers in the... By the way, let me pause for just a moment. My wife said, you keep talking about false teachers in first hour. If people are watching this around the world, they're going to think we're inviting false teachers into our church that's not what's going on, world. It, the, those of us here, we are, are going through a video series that is explaining the true gospel compared to the false gospel. And we're hearing bad theology, but then followed up with good theology. So just in case that confuses people out there who may be listening in the virtual world, we don't invite false teachers into our church. However, what we've been hearing is that Jesus never preached that he was the way the truth, and the life, that he never preached, that believing on him alone and his work on the cross, that he never did that, that you don't find that in the Gospels, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus continually challenged people to drop everything and follow him. You think of that rich man who was justifying himself with his works and his actions and his self-righteousness, the end of that encounter in Mark is very fascinating because it says Jesus loved him and said, Here's, you, you lack one thing. Just, you need to sell everything you have and, and follow me. And of course, he left sorrowful because he was rich and he had so much. What is Jesus challenging him with? The gospel. You drop everything and follow me. Put your faith in me solely, 100%. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. You trust me for salvation, nothing else. That's the gospel. He was, the gospel was standing in front of, the word was standing in front of this man. Did Jesus preach the gospel, the complete gospel, better than anyone? Better than anyone. You had the word, the light, the God incarnate standing in front of you, telling you this. So I say that for this reason. They believed his word. They believed him. They believed he was the Messiah. And this is beyond his ability to perform a miracle. We don't even know about that. We know the word was preached. We know the word was preached. This is encouraging to you and I, Christian, because you're, you're not going to be performing miracles today. You're, you're not going to raise a man from the dead, and, and you're not going to make a crippled man walk. You've got something even more dynamic, even more supernatural, even more life-changing. This is why Jesus said, you'll do greater things than I. You preach the gospel, the complete, finished, looking back on it, hindsight, perfect gospel of Jesus Christ that can save a man's soul not just fix a leg or make an eye see. Those are temporary things. As I think about what we've been discussing in Sunday school these last several weeks, you know what the biggest hang-up, I think, with the false teachers that we've heard about is the temporal versus eternal. It's, it's always that. And, and that can, we, can, we can fade into that sometimes too, Christian. We can fade into that. We get wrapped up in our temporal. Lord, do this, do that. And that's not what we want to see from Jesus. We want to see life eternal changing things, not temporal. And that's the focus Jesus has. All right, so as we go back and we go forward after these two days, 
Look at what it says in verse 43. After these two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country or his hometown, for some of you have that depending on your translation. So when he came to Galilee, this is the NASB version, I'm going to tell you why in a minute, the Galileans received him. And in and, and some of your translations, it's going to say welcomed. That's a better translation. But here it says received, which this Greek word, we'll, we'll look at it in a moment, can be translated received, but it's different. Having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. All right, now that's a qualifier for us. Look at what it says here. They themselves went to the feast and they saw, saw all that he did. They, they welcomed him. This word received is more welcomed him. They wanted to see him. They wanted him to come, but it's the qualifiers because they saw what he did. They were dazzled by what he had done. And when we think about this, this is kind of, it's kind of convicting because when we look at this, we're going to look at this twice, by the way, John chapter 2 tells us a little bit about that event. If you're in John still, you can go back to John 2 and you can see this. And we're going to look at more of this passage later in the sermon. But he says, now, when he was in Jerusalem, it specifically says, in the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Why? Because they observed his signs, which he was doing. Now, we're not told the detail exactly, but we can guess. And how could we guess? Well, similar thing happened in Matthew 11. When we look at John the Baptist's apostles, or disciples, rather, asking Jesus. John wants to know, he's in prison, are you really the Christ? And if you recall that situation in Matthew 11, here's what Jesus said and did, and we could assume that maybe some of these same things happened, that they observed this. What miracles, what signs? As we skip through into this passage, Matthew chapter 11, take a look at this. Jesus answered them. He said this, go and tell John what you've heard and seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. Now up to this point, we don't have a resurrection in John chapter 4, or John chapter 2 rather. But he's speaking of the things that would prove to him to be the Messiah. Where are these coming from? The Old Testament that the Jews knew. As a matter of fact, they were the ones who should have known. They were well aware of what the signs were for the Messiah. Jesus here in Matthew 11 is quoting Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. He's combining those two. These are proofs that I am the one you've been waiting for. Now here's the thing. If we go forward in this passage in John 2, you're going to see a little later, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew the hearts of men. He knew what they were thinking. That He could see that what their issue was, was, was beyond just that they were impressed. They were not following. They weren't surrendering. They weren't believing in the sense that we would say that is saving faith. And Jesus could see that, and he could see that with us. And he knows that about you. Now, I want to go back for a second. If we go back to this text, notice it says this. When we look at the context as we go forward, it says that they received him or welcomed him. It seems ironic because Jesus is going to say something that seems like the total opposite of this in just a few verses. That because he can see the hearts of men, as we'll see, that he can see their hearts too. So I I found this very interesting quote from R.C. Sproul. Here's what his take on this. Let me read this to you. I know it's small. And this is about this passage. He says this, as we read scripture today, 
we don't have the advantage of listening to the tone of voice that people use when they speak in the Bible, or to see their facial expressions, or their gestures, and rarely do we get the editorial comment that will say that Jesus spoke in a loud voice. We don't get that. We don't know in what sense or nuance someone is speaking. So sometimes we see statements in the text that when you read them in their raw form, you can't pick up the irony or sarcasm. See, he's interpreting this as sarcastic. That, we, that may have been intended. Let's just suppose that John may have meant for the statement to be, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him as a sarcastic commentary. Because if you see the thrust of the narrative that we're reading and that follows afterwards, that is an ongoing problem in Jesus' ministry, especially in Galilee. We're going to see this today. The people, yes, indeed welcomed him for a moment when they were looking for signs and wonders. Sure, they welcomed him for his miracles, but there is no honor given to him as the Messiah. This is a stark contrast to what we have just seen in Samaria. As we just looked at, what are those? They, they heard his word, and they believed he was the Savior of the world. Not a miracle. They don't even mention miracles. He may not have performed any other miracles. He saved them from their sins. The eternal versus the temporal. Here, it's probably ironic. It's probably in jest. It's possible that that's what John was doing. So let's look at these. I mentioned this two, these two words, received. You'll notice the most famous word we see of, of received that I covered a few weeks ago. Pastors referenced it as well from John 1. But as many as received him, right? He gave the right to become sons of God. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believed in his name. And, and we decided there, if you recall, from the language that receive and believe are the same. That we put our trust in him. Those are two Greek words that are different. They don't even look the same. They're very different. They have the same root, but they're different. Here's the difference between these two. When we see the received here in this one, it's welcome uh, because it's right. Because it's, um, it, it'd be rude not to. It's welcome because I want to hear a little bit more. I'm going to receive you because there's something to it, and I, and I want to dig a little deeper. Or I'm just impressed. So I'm going to receive you. This one is entirely different. In the Greek language, this one particularly, and I wrote this down, it means to grab hold of, to seize it, to hold tight, to keep it. It means something permanent. Very different. The, in the English, they're both received. But boy, do they mean different things. Boy, do they mean different things. And let me tell you, that is the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a true follower of Jesus. We just sang in these two songs about what we're holding on to. You know, you think about that first song we sang, or I guess it would be the, the second song we sang, is where you envision this, that Jesus is all your life, and you're walking with him in, the, in Zion, and you get, you get this sense that he's your life. And believer, that's true. If, if, you're, if you're in Christ, if he loves you, if, he's put, if you put your faith in him, he saved you, he is your life. He's your life. He's everything. It, it, it's, it, he's your Savior. It's very personal. It's permanent, right? There's very difference, big difference between these two words. So as we look forward in this, we're going to see that we've got a problem with their view of receiving him, their view of welcoming him, welcoming him. So as we look at John chapter 4, Jesus is the genie. Let's read that text. John chapter 4, just this section. So John 4, starting at verse 46. So we've kind of given us the, the lead into this, which is so critical. So he came into Cana and Galilee, where he had made water into wine. 
We heard that from Pastor last week, this incredible miracle. Some were there, potentially, that saw Jesus. Others heard about it. But it was an incredible event. And at Capernaum, where there was an official whose son was ill. We'll get to Capernaum in a minute. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now before we get into this text, I, just this week, Mindy sent me a Vody Bauckham quote, and you can tell this came from a phone, it wasn't mine, so don't start rumors, I don't have a phone. But my wife sent this to me as a screenshot, and it was on Vody Bauckham's, I don't, she sends him, I don't, there must be personal friends, she sends, he, she gets quotes from him and John MacArthur, so they're real tight. Anyway, here's one of the things <laughs> that he said that I thought went so well with this. We can't fully understand God's holiness, but we can understand it much better than we currently do. By and large, the typical evangel- evangelical's understanding of God is pathetically superficial. Too many professing believers think about God in only self-centered and self-indulgent terms. How timely for our passage. Reducing him to little more than a genie in a lamp. I had already titled this section, Jesus as a Genie, and she didn't know that I had, and then she sent this to me on Wednesday. So I, I threw it in here. I just find that interesting. That's what people do. We reduce him to that. Others are uh, preoccupied with a relational perspective on God. They want him to be more comfortable and inviting. Did we not hear that in the first hour? Less of a divine sovereign and more of a casual buddy. Such shallow thinking invites confusion and corruption into the midst of God's people and perverts their perspective of their holy Lord and Savior. Holy Lord and Savior. King of kings. God Almighty. The one you will stand before. We forget about his holiness, his power, his might. Do we tremble at that? And so often we do not. So as we think about that passage, take a look at this. We've got a man who's going to fit into this category for a moment. It says specifically, this man, this official, came from Capernaum. And and he is somebody who's heard about Jesus. And he's desperate. Why is he desperate? Because his son is at the point of death. I get that. You get that. We understand that. That's something that's painful, and it's, it's, it's urgent, and it's right now. And, and many of us have been in that situation where we've got this urgency. Even as believers, we feel that and sometimes cry out to God for a, an immediate solution. And we want that. And, and, and I'm not saying that that's altogether wrong. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Please, don't, don't misunderstand me. You, you cry out to the Lord for help. But we do that as believers, right-thinking believers, all-encompassing in the will of God, that we want His will to be done, so much like Christ's prayer in the garden. But not my will, yours be done. And, and that's exactly how we do this. But, but what we see here is a man who's desperate, who does not yet know Christ as Savior. He knows Christ as a miracle maker. He, he sees Christ as somebody who can solve his problem right here, right now. Now, he's so desperate, I'm going to give you some details about this, that he goes a 20-mile distance. I don't know how much time he had where he figured out that Christ was coming, and he was coming from Samaria. I don't know. I'm sure he had heard. He may have been part of those who heard about Jesus in Jerusalem from John 2. He may have heard, maybe potentially, what was going on in Samaria. Maybe it was from the, the water to wine. We don't know. I don't know, but he made an effort. 20 miles back then is different than 20 miles today. I could cover 20 miles in a very short time. 
maybe shorter than I should, but you can too. This was hard, and it was desperate, and his son was near death, so he had to leave his son to come. He is definitely in the definition of desperation, and he's seeking an answer. His mind is not on sin. It is not on heaven. It is not on hell. It is save my son today. That's what he wants, and he is persistent with it. Now, it says official. Here's what most people think. He was probably somebody who was on King Herod's staff, which would make him Jewish, but he was potentially, potentially a Gentile. We don't know. We don't know for sure, but he was a high official either way. He was a high official. We, we just don't know exactly. He was somebody who had authority, which makes me think he's probably tried everything else. He's had the resources to do so. He's tried every other human means to save his son, and it wasn't working. So understand the situation this man's in. You can understand it, but he's coming to the Lord with a wrong view of what Jesus should be. As we look at this 48, and I've got the ESV and the NASB here, you see that he, when Jesus responds to him in 48, he says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs. Now, if you read that in just the ESV, without the luxury of knowing Greek, you'd say, oh, he's just talking to this man. But fortunately, the NASB gives us a broader understanding of this particular Greek word, which is plural. It really means you people. You and everybody else here, you've got the wrong idea. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, this man's desperate, but his mind is not on Jesus at all. It's on the miracle. It's on his son. It's self-centered. Now, I understand. We'd feel the same way. It's our son. It's our... But I want you to rem... I'm going to remind you of what's true from Scripture. If you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus said, you need to love me more than your family. That, that you put me above your son, your daughter, your wife, your mother, your father. That if you're going to follow me, your own life is forfeit. That I'm more important than everything else. This isn't cruel. This is the essential understanding of the gospel. That we're all in. That this is an all-in proposition. So as we think this, go back to, well, you can if you want to. It's probably just a few pages away. I told you we'd continue that, John, too. Look at Jesus. Here in Jerusalem, where these signs and wonders happen, look at what he says if we pick it up in verse 24. We read 23. They're observing his signs and they're following, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning men, he himself knew what was in man. Now, he tells us what's in us, selfishness, pride, ego. What I want, and I want it right now. Satisfaction, ease, happiness, that's what's in man. Man is in man. We're God. Remember, we're his enemy until he changes us. Now, before we start thinking, yeah, those folks back then, they just didn't get it. It's because they just didn't understand and process the true gospel like we do today. Well, we've seen in first hour in the last several weeks that's not true. I'm going to let you fill in some of your own. These are some that came off the top of my head. People sometimes rush to Jesus today for similar things, simply for what they can get out of Jesus or from him. Here's a few examples, and I've thought of more since then. I've jotted them down. I won't give them all to you, but I'll bet you could share some too. Desperate for a miracle like this man, some physical, financial, emotional, relational issue. So they go to Jesus because they don't know what else to do. He's the genie. That modern health, wealth gospel that they're struggling with in, in our sister church and in, in, in our, our brother in, in Italy, that is prominent in our world today. Those foxhole conditional conversions. We've heard of those. Matter of fact, there's movies made about those. 
the Jesus plus theology. Well, Jesus, I'm, you're going to be my hedge. I'm going to hedge my bets, and I'm going to add. I, I got to do all this, but just in case, I'm going to have you on my side too. You're my pal. You're my, you're my advocate in that. If then blessing theology, if you do this, if you impress the Lord, then he'll bless you. If you disappoint him, then you're going to be miserable. And then demanding signs from God. Others that I thought about this morning as my wife was listening to Alistair Begg. She has to listen to somebody good before she comes to me so that she can feel like she really got blessed today. But she was, I was I walking in and, and she was listening to Alistair Begg. And, and I just, this happens so often. This is not the first time I've mentioned this to you. Uh, um, this is fascinating. He just, in casuals, I'm walking crossed. He's making mention of Pilate's view of Jesus. And this came from John 19. I had to quickly jot it down. He says to Jesus, after he's condemned him, say, ah, he is innocent. I don't understand this, but honestly, he's cowardly enough to just not want to face the truth. And when Jesus, he questions Jesus one more time. This is even after the flogging. He says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know what authority that I have, that I have the authority to crucify you? This is one more. There are most people in this world today think they're worthy of salvation. That Jesus should talk to them, that he should come to them, that he should show them something, impress them. You want me to believe, well, you better, don't you know who I am? Boy, the pride of man. It was certainly in, in Pilate. And, of course, Jesus' response to him, you you realize that you would have no authority over me if it didn't come from above. You would have nothing. But this man didn't understand that, of course. Of course he didn't. It's a fascinating thing to think about him, but clearly in that moment he didn't. This is not an old problem. It is a current problem. The wrong view of Jesus and who he is and what he can do for you. Coming to to the, the gospel with your preconceived ideas about what you're going to get out of it. Here's what we bring to the gospel. Dave mentioned it in his prayer. We bring sin and the understanding that we can do nothing about it and the humility and the brokenness of realizing that there is only one who can. That's what you bring to the salvation message. The gospel is about Jesus. That's what it's about. Here's what John MacArthur says about it. Johnny Mac usually has good things to say about things, and this is what he said. John based these two phrases in the same Greek verb of believe. This verse subtly reveals the true nature of belief from a biblical standpoint. Because of what they knew of Jesus from his miraculous signs, many came to believe in him. However, Jesus made it his habit not to wholeheartedly entrust or commit himself to them because he knew their hearts, and he knows yours, and he knows mine. Verse 24, this is the John 2 passage, indicates that Jesus looked for genuine conversion rather than enthusiasm for the spectacular. The latter verse also uh, leaves a subtle doubt as to the genuineness of the conversion of some. This emphatic emphatic contrast between 23 and 24 in terms of type of trust, therefore, reveals that literally belief into his name involved much more than intellectual assent. I've made that reference myself. It called for a wholehearted commitment of one's life as Jesus' disciple. That's what it's about. And this was a common problem, not just for this man, but for the region. You certainly know of what Jesus has said about Capernaum, where his headquarters happened to be, where many signs and wonders were performed, and that wasn't enough. And he says this about this city, this region, where this man came from. So he's not just talking to this guy. He's talking to everyone who had the same poor view of Jesus. You, Capernaum, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And we know the wickedness of Sodom. He's saying it's even worse. You, I, I wasn't at Sodom. I didn't go there and preach in the flesh to Sodom. He was on the outskirts, by the way, if we want to think of the Christophany that happened there with Abraham. But he's saying, if I had been there, I think they would have repented. You saw these works. You know what the prophecy said, and you still don't believe. You still don't believe because you're wanting something that's temporal instead of eternal. Pretty incredible. A, A pretty shocking statement, but Christ makes it intentionally. Further on in Matthew, uh, in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 12, the same concept he's, he's putting and hanging on the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, they say to him, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Sounds like Jesus is preaching the gospel there, by the way. You know, being in the grave for three days and then resurrecting. Sounds like he's preaching the gospel, but I guess I've missed it. That's what he's doing here. They'd seen signs and wonders. Pharisees, scribes, had been there in his presence when he cast it out. Just before this, literally, he cast out a demon. They then attested that to the power of Satan. They went a step further, which is where we get this understanding of uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They saw signs and wonders. They just weren't enough for them. It just wasn't enough for them. I think the sign and wonder they wanted was, could you defeat Rome and elevate us? That's what we want. That's the sign we want. Be that commanding king general that wipes out all the people we don't like, and then elevate us and say we're holy and righteous. That's the sign they wanted. That's what they were looking for. But here's the deal. This is where we're at. This is where Christ was at. Certainly this is where Paul was at. Here's what we preach. Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. End of story, right there. A stumbling block for the Jews, and it's folly for the Gentiles. That is what we do. It's not about the signs, and it's not about the wonders, it's about the heart. That crucifixion happened, as we've sung today already, because of you, because of me. As those nails were driven through his hands and his feet, that was your sin that put him there. His love for you kept him there because he cared about you. His will accomplished this. It was the zeal and the desire of the Father to crush his son, Isaiah 53. And it was his will that accomplished it. That's a fact. Uh, Vody this morning in hour one said, yes, God did kill his son. Yes, he did do that. And it should have been you and it should have been me for eternity. But that's, that's what we preach, Christ crucified. As we think going forward, is signs and wonders, is it sinful to believe in that? Oh, of course not. What does John say? We've talked about this, Pastor and I, almost every week we bring this up. Jesus did these signs so that we would believe, no doubt about it, to confirm who he is, to, to put the authority behind his message, to say he is God incarnate. We have covered that. It's not wrong to believe that. You should believe that. But if it's only there, if it stops there because you're dazzled, because it's impressive, or he's just a superhero to you, he's just like a better Superman, he's like a Marvel comic, that's not enough. That's not what it is. Those were authenticating who he was. It's not who he is. He's your Savior. He should be your Savior. So when we think of this going forward, we think back to John again, and as John talks about this going forward, they're not enough. 
Look at this. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple, the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly, as if he hadn't. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I'll tell you this, it's our job to preach the gospel. We must, and we need to do it passionately. You should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. But salvation belongs to the Lord. No one comes to the Father or to the Son unless he's drawn by the Father. It's as simple as that. If they're not his sheep, now it's not up to you and it's not up to me. If you hear the gospel, it's your responsibility to repent and believe today. But I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't understand a single word from here, nor would you, if it not be for the grace of God. I wouldn't get it. When Peter gave his great confession, well, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't pat Peter on the back and say, you came up with that. You're brilliant. That came from above. This humbles us. This, this helps us to understand. The signs help. They, they certainly give us the proof. It, it, it actually puts more judgment on us when we don't believe. But if we're not as sheep, we're not going to get it. We're not going to understand this. Now, this shouldn't stop you from preaching the gospel. That's not in our, it's not in our pay grade. That's between them and the Lord. But we preach the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. And he's going to draw those, and he's going to convict those that are his. And it's going, to be, it's going to be between them, the sinner, and the Savior. It's always going to be that way. That's what it's going to be. Going forward, we're going to see a transition from crisis faith to confident faith. Back to John 4. If you're in your text, let's pick it up at verse 49. John 4, 49. We're going to see a transition here, and I'll go quickly through these last because it's, it's a beautiful thing that we're about to see. Because we're going to see a change in a man's life that has only a little to do with healing his son. Just a little, believe it or not. So this is what it says. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He hears what Jesus says. He hears the challenge and what Jesus has slapped him in the face with that you're not believing unless it's a sign. He's so desperate. He says it one more time. Please, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Okay? There's, there's no magic. He doesn't put his hands up. He doesn't you know, tell him, anoint him with oil or go this, or he doesn't have to show up. Jesus is showing the kind of power that he has. The power, by the way, in his word, as we heard in the Samaritans, without a sign, the, the, the true miracle is when the sinner hears the gospel, the word of God, and they're saved. That's the bigger miracle. Jesus said, your son will live. He lives, actually. And he, he's challenging this man to take his word. Now, I think that's interesting because we don't see the narrative go to the man says, no, no, you've got to come with me. No, it's not enough. I need proof. We're seeing a change in this man in a very small moment here, and it's starting to develop, and we're going to see it ultimately come to an incredible salvation faith. But he just, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He did it. He believed it. So he went on his way. And, and that's an incredible thing to consider. And it says, as he was going down, his, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Just like that, Jesus did what he said he was going to do. His word never comes back void, but his promises are always true. Uh, I, I thought in this, this morning, as I'm sure many of you thought the same thing as we were listening to some of this, this the, the false teaching and then the, the, the positive teaching, but here's what I know about my Lord. 
I, the Lord, do not change. And what do we know from Jesus, who is part of this incredible trinity? Our Jesus, our Savior, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he says something, it's going to happen. If he promises it, it will take place. The saddest thing, I think, when I hear false teachers talking about this God who can change his mind is, wow, what assurance do you have of your next moment? What assurance do you have that this God that is so powerful that we all agree upon won't turn on you? Won't suddenly say, I change it all. There is no real salvation. As a matter of fact, now I'm going to send everybody to hell. Even if I said I was saved you by the grace of, of, of Jesus, I'm still going to... What if that were the God you were serving? It would drive you crazy if you really believed that. If you created something like that. Here's what Sproul says about this. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. The Christian life is not believing in God. It's believing God. I love that. It's believing God. Everything about him. Everything in his word. Everything that he promises. Everything that he does. What saving faith is, is trusting what God says is truth. What's so marvelous about this account of this man is that in the midst of his desperation, he heard the promise of Christ and he believed it. He believed it. He believed the word of Christ. He trusted Christ enough. He didn't try to drag Christ with him or elicit some sort of guarantee, but rather he just went on his way and headed back home. This means this man seems to have trusted Christ without actually seeing him perform the miracle. And that should hearken back in your mind to what Jesus says to Thomas in John 20. Thomas is wanting to see the, the hands and the feet, the scars, all of this. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. And that's true. Thomas believed. He's blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. That's what Christ is looking for. He wants that sort of, that sort of follower that we possibly can't even please him without faith. Look at the author of Hebrews. Look at what he says. This is our perfect definition of faith. But then I'm going to skip ahead. We're going to do verse 1, 2, and 6, just putting these together. I don't like to do this normally. You know, I want to kind of expand on the whole passage, but it would take too long. Here's what we're going to do. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. The people of the Old Testament who hadn't seen Christ, they heard the promises, they believed on it, and as Abraham, as we're given that reckoning, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith in the Messiah to come, who he didn't even know his name, didn't know the details of the cross like we do, didn't know the details of the resurrection, the ascension, and his coming back. He didn't know all that. He believed what God promised him. He believed it, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We don't have to see signs and wonders. They're neat, they're cool, they verify, they authenticate who he is, but that's not what it's about. Faith is simple. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Look at Mark 1. Jesus, we heard this last week in first hour as well. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. No miracle mentioned, no miracle performed. What we see here is Jesus saying, repent and believe. Believe in me, follow me, proclaiming the gospel. That's what we see. Further on in Mark 1, they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. They want to know, they want to see miracles. He said, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out to preach the gospel, to preach the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
It's not complicated. Jesus preached the gospel, so should we. So what do we do? When we hear the gospel, we go preach it. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's what Christ says in this great commission. We preach the gospel, but we preach it all. We preach the full counsel of God. We don't change it to make it more palatable. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't make it easy. We don't take hell out. We don't take repentance out. We don't take judgment out. Then we're taking God out. No, what we do is we preach all of it. Everything that Christ had preached. Everything that he said. Look at the other account from this in this this last meeting with Christ and his apostles. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Seems like Jesus is preaching the gospel again. It's crazy. And that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem and then everywhere. All nations, that's you and me. You're witnesses of these things. You're witnesses of these things. You aren't eyewitnesses, but God changed you too. And then we bring this home. The grace of God in spite of our sin. This man didn't have a very good understanding of Jesus. And then look at what happens. And you think, how could he do that? I'll tell you, he did it to you too. John 4, 52. Look at this. So he asked them at the hour and when he began to go get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. This is real belief here. This is real, legitimate belief. We'll look at that word here in just a second. And then it says all his household. The whole household did. Everybody in his household. Now this isn't universal salvation. It isn't because dad believes, that means everybody's saved. No, they all heard the gospel, and they all repented and believed. They all heard it. They all heard the truth. They all believed in it. The whole household, very similar to what we see in the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. The, the jailer saw the miracle. The family didn't. What happened was, Paul and Silas went to this man's home, the Philippian jailer, preached the gospel, and they believed. That's incredible. It's the word of God that saves people. It's the word of Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified, as we already covered earlier. This is an amazing thing that we see here. That this is, this is a transition. This is grace and salvation in spite of this man's poor view of Jesus that began to transform as Christ transformed him, as Jesus transformed him. You, you look at this, and he, he called him out for his sin. You don't believe without a sign, you and all these people. But then something changed in this man. Something changed in his heart. We think about Ephesians 2, and I wish I could spend more time here. But this is you, this is me, this is everybody who's ever been saved. This is your life story. And I'm skipping verses 1 through 3 because I'd take way too long on it. But look at what it says here. You can read along in Ephesians chapter 2. When we look at this passage, this is the life of the believer, how it starts. Every single one of you. I don't care how old you were. If you were very young or if you're very old or somewhere in the middle, this happened to you. You were going the way of the world. You didn't have the right view of Christ either. You were maybe having a twisted odd, weird, distorted view of Christ that so many of the things we've heard in hour one over the last several weeks, but here's what happened. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, you, me, every other sinner, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we didn't have him right, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. He did that to you. He did that to me. By grace you've been saved, and he's raised you up He's raised you up. And notice it says, and you're seated. He seated us with him in heavenly places right now. 
Someday that's going to be absolutely guaranteed in your glorified form, reigning with Christ. But it's already done. It's solid. It's, it's something you can't lose. This is all what Christ did for you. If you want encouragement, keep reading this to yourself. Over and over and over again, I once was this and now I am this. And it is all because of him. He's what happened in the middle. As we go through this, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. I can't wait. What is it going to be like to be in eternity with Christ, sinless, by the way, without sin, without temptation, without this flesh of ours that we war against, as we see in Romans 7 and the men discussed yesterday? Can you imagine what it's going to be like in eternity with Jesus without that sin nature? You love him now. You love to be with him and read his word. Does he give you contentment and joy now? Imagine what it's going to be like. I can't wait. And I I hope you can't wait either. And if you don't know that, if you don't know him, today's your day. Turn to him in repentance and belief so that in the coming ages he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest we boast. And that's where this all comes into. Now, I think that's a good place to stop, but if you're in Ephesians 2, and you may not be, you may very well not be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and a couple weeks ago when I preached uh, Ruth said, I thought you were going to go to Ephesians 2.10. I said, I was, but I ran out of time. So Ruth, today's the day. I'm going to bring this back in. Ephesians chapter 2. We don't want to read Ephesians 1, and we didn't read 1, but 1 through 9, and not take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. What does this mean to you right now? How, how does this affect you today? Here's how it does. Look at this. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, believer, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. I'm going to tell you what your primary good work is. We already looked at it. To to declare the absolute, perfect, clean gospel from the Word of God. Share this life-changing message with the world. And and, and listen, we got to change people from being fans to followers. they got to see Jesus as King, Lord, God, Judge righteous judge they got to see him different they got to see him the way the bible teaches him to be those good works that you're going to do these were preordained look at this which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them he's intent he's preparing you every day every sunday every day you open up your your bible every time you study with a a group with your husband your wife with your family he's preparing you to give a defense for the hope that you have within you to give the true understanding of who christ is he's not just a miracle maker He's not just a magician. He's God incarnate encountering you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we've had in your word. We thank you for the incredible message that has been given through your son to this man and how it changed his life and his family's life. And it was because of his word, not because of the miracles. It was because of the word that was given. And we still have that today. And we bless your name, we thank you, we praise your name that we have the incredible honor and responsibility to do this same exact work today. We don't need the miracles. You've done those. You've authenticated who you are. You've proved who you are. We get to tell all about you. I pray that we do that with passion, with certainty, with hope, and with joy so that we can save a fallen world or help save a fallen world and we know you're the one who's going to save them. We thank you for giving us that opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.